For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with Dave Isay, the founder and president of StoryCorps, about how you can participate in next week's great Thanksgiving listen. So what are our desert-dwelling neighbors really like? Author Alejandro Canelos talks about the plant and animal secrets revealed in his short story collection, The Neotenic Queen, Tales of Sex and Survival in the Sonoran Desert. And learn how the town of Bisbee is creating more nature-friendly habitats in cooperation with the Arizona Wildlife Federation and how you can participate in that. Those stories are all next on Arizona Spotlight. The motto of the nonprofit group StoryCorps is simple but profound. Listening is an act of love. Since 2003, thousands of people from around the world have had the opportunity to record stories in the form of a conversation with someone they love. Those stories are preserved and shared in a special archive at the Library of Congress. The founder and president of StoryCorps is Dave Isay, whose career began as a documentarian and audio engineer. A few years ago, I talked with Dave Isay about the annual project called The Great Thanksgiving Listen. It's an invitation to listen to the elders in your family, and StoryCorps has done a lot to make it accessible to everyone. So we created an app which makes it possible for you to record StoryCorps interviews, not in a booth, but anytime, place, with your mobile device and then with one tap, upload it to the Library of Congress. And we tried this experiment to see how, how much we could scale StoryCorps. And we asked U.S. history teachers and social studies teachers across the country, just those teachers uh, in high school, to ask their students to record an interview with an elder over Thanksgiving weekend. And um, we didn't know what was going to happen uh, on the Thursday of Thanksgiving. You know, we saw a slight uptick in interviews, but nothing really happened. And then Friday, there was the same thing. It was just kind of steady state. And Saturday, you know, I had done a bunch of media interviews, and I started, uh, they were calling to see what happened. And I said, well, you know, the great Thanksgiving listen failed. But this idea of of listening to each other is so important. We're never going to give up on this. We're going to try it next year. And then on Sunday, uh, we had given up. And on Sunday night, I got a text from a colleague saying, you need to look at what's happening on the app. And I looked, and there were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of stories coming in, 50,000 stories in one night, as many as we'd recorded in the first 10 years of StoryCorps combined, which was a great moment of kind of uh, light going off in my head because it hadn't occurred to me that um, kids wait until Sunday night to do their homework. But I will never forget it. We decided to open it up not just to social studies teachers, but to every teacher in every grade, college, high school, middle school, even elementary, if, if you think the kids can do this, and take it as an opportunity. You know, StoryCorps in so many ways is about collecting the wisdom of humanity, and we thought it would be appropriate to have kids sit with elders and ask them for wisdom about this country and about healing and what we need to do to heal the, the divides in this country. This is an example of how simple and easy the conversation can be. We're going to hear a young woman named Kara interview her grandfather, James, sitting in a 1994 Buick to have the conversation. That, that ended up being their sound booth. So if a, if a Buick can work, imagine the number of other places where you could have one of these recordings. Yep. So uh, let's listen for a moment. How did you know that grandma was the one? Well, she was a good looker. <laughs> <laughs> we fit together. We were a good pair. Were you nervous to propose to her? No. We had something to say, we said it. Like you. <laughs> <laughs> what are your keys to a happy marriage? 
if something happens, just say I'm sorry and get it over with. <laughs> There's no reason to carry on. I just say I'm sorry. I love you. And that was the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to be remembered as like a real tough guy or? Yeah, I was a pretty soft guy. When you was, intimidated when me super... when I was little. <laughs> I did. Yeah, you did. Are you happy about the life you've lived? Oh, yeah. It wasn't the easiest life back in them days. Mother died when I was four, and it was a tough life. He tells one story about how he was eight or nine, and he was ice skating on the river, and he fell through. He didn't have hot water wherever he was living with his dad, so he broke into the school and just took a hot shower in the school. I think that says a lot about his childhood, that there was really no one there to help him get out of the water or keep him warm. That was an interview that was done for the Great Thanksgiving Listen, and as you hear, um, we asked uh, Kara to come back in and talk about the experience of interviewing her grandfather. And again, as you said, it just shows how, how easy this is. I mean, there are two things I can guarantee you about doing uh, one of these interviews. One is that you're going to find out things about whoever you're interviewing that you didn't know before, because as you know, the microphone gives you the license to talk about things that we just don't talk about. And the second thing is that you're just not going to regret it. One of the many miracles of StoryCorps is that, you know, every single one of those people has had a good experience. You know, we're all part of the same team fighting the same fight, and it's an honor to work with Arizona Public Media and Arizona Spotlight to get the word out there. Happy holidays. You can find a link to the StoryCorps app that Dave Isay mentioned on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Neoteny is a concept from biology about the retention of juvenile characteristics as an organism develops. Its application throughout the animal kingdom is diverse and interesting, and it served as a major springboard for author Alejandro Canelos. His new collection of 25 short stories is called The Neotenic Queen, Tales of Sex and Survival in the Sonoran Desert. I would compare it to an adult version of books like Watership Down or the early 20th century bedtime stories of Fortin Burgess. It reveals that the minds of the animals and even the plants that surround us are much like our own, with anxieties, passions, and needs that drive their behavior. These imaginative tales are grounded by the illustrations of wildlife artist Rachel Ivani. I talked with Alejandro Canelos about this fascinating book. I would find or think about an animal or a plant that I wanted to write about that just I found interesting and so I would start doing the research. I don't know why I thought I should do termites but you know termites are a big big part of our ecosystem and uh, you know if you talk to people here in town they're also a big pain for a lot of people. I just started reading about subterranean termites and um, the social organization of termites was incredible. I had learned some about social behavior in ants and bees um, when I was studying biology. Even though termites are actually more closely related to cockroaches than they are bees, other social insects, their life cycle I just thought was incredible. So there's a king and a queen, and they meet, and they start having offspring. And... And when they meet, they may still have wings, meaning they have great mobility and a larger uh, right. region. But what happens once a male and a female decide to 
Right. Next. So I can tell you, I would. There are certain times of year you go outside and you see all these flying insects in a big swarm. Um, turns out those are termites, and those are winged termites that are leaving the nest in order to go out and start their own colony. Okay, and they're flying around looking for a mate. Male and female come together, choose a mate, they land, they drop their wings, and they find somewhere to go down underground and start a family. And that becomes the king and the queen. And for the first year or two, there aren't that many eggs that are laid, but as the process goes along, it gets into the millions and millions of eggs. What I found most fascinating about these termites was how they're literally millions of these termites in in a nest and they all have a job to do and the way that um, they know what their job is how I could relate to it as a human being is through mind control from their parents <laughs> so the king and the queen through pheromones and through a feeding schedule can, is is they decide what each termites job is and um, like all these stories, I would find things that I could personally relate to. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, there are parents and they're telling all of their children, this is what you need to do in order to make our family successful. I can relate to that as a child of parents and I can relate to that as a parent of children. Um, and the fact that these little things that are insects and supposedly have tiny brains in a lot of ways act just the same way we do, you know, across the spectrum for this book, I kept finding that over and over. And what you just hit upon there is the idea that in all of these stories, no matter what form these characters take, whether they're mammals or birds or reptiles or insects, you see people you know there. Mm -hmm. You've met Lorna before. You know, you've met a hard-boiled private detective style roadrunner before. You may not know it, but you have. Mm -hmm. These plants and animals... They have wants. They're wants that I can relate to and that I think all of us as human beings. So when you say they're people that we've met before, mm -hmm. it's because we all ultimately, when you boil it down, we all want the same things. Mm -hmm. um, I like to say we want um, comfort, mm -hmm. we want security, mm -hmm. and we want to leave something behind, whether in the form of offspring or art or scientific discovery. We want to make a mark. We have a desire to have our life have meaning. If you look at the behavior of these animals, um, they seem to all have that too. Well, one of the most shocking developments for me in reading your book was finding out that saguaro cacti, who are so highly revered, can kind of be jerks. The idea that the saguaro culture is so megalithic that the predominant leaders can tell the other saguaros to go back into their hole for decades, centuries. I never imagined saguaros behaving like that. So can you please explain a little bit, Alejandro, about how you decided on the characterizations that you used in the chapter that is about vegetable life, not animal? Okay. I wanted to write a story about saguaros. And so the first thing I thought was, okay, how do they communicate? My wife, who is now a professor at the law school here, here at the U of A, um, her previous job was for 10 years, she represented clients on death row at Florence Prison. You know, I would ask her 
what's it like over there? And she said, well, everybody's in their own cell. And the way that they communicate with each other is through yelling. And you have people that may never see each other, except when somebody's walking by their cell. Yet they yell and they can hear each other. They have set up an entire social hierarchy and, in fact, a whole, I guess you would call it an economic system based on hearing one another. And in that kind of a situation, now this is just me speculating, okay? The person who is most convincing or is the best speaker or can convince more people to be, say, on their side is going to be the person who's in charge, right? The loudest voice. Yeah. And so I started to think of these saguaros. Well, if they're communicating and they can't move, they can't impose their will upon each other physically. And if you can't do that, you do it through economic means. If neither of those options is available to you, you still have the tool of shame. The saguaros that can't move are communicating with each other, and there is a boss. And how does he retain control? How does he get people to follow him? Well, people fear him. His name is Handy Andy in this story. There's something different about the leader, Handy Andy, though. What is it? He's armless, and if you've ever gone out and you see there's a kind of saguaro you will see occasionally that normally doesn't have arms, it's some kind of an, a fund, fungal infection that occurs fairly early in their life and stunts their growth, mm-hmm. and they look like fans, so they're also mm-hmm. called fan-top cactuses, um, and they're very rare. Um, what I saw was one in 50,000 saguaros are like this. So one average saguaro one day decides to speak his mind and say his truth, and he is shunned. It's really dark, man. <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's solitary confinement. And so if you are in a situation where, and that's what they do, is my understanding, is if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time, nobody will speak to you. And that becomes like a hell. And, and, and a longer hell than most humans can experience. This happens to your central Saguaro character over decades. Mm-hmm. The results are heartbreaking. Across the spectrum, you are using creatures and references that anyone who's lived in this state for any period of time will catch. Even if I choose to describe the Neotenic Queen as somewhat a work of science fiction, it's not alien science fiction. It's right here in our backyards. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the book, there's a map that shows where each story takes place because, you know, I wanted to write about this area. I'm a Tucson kid, and I grew up running around here. I grew up at the going to the Desert Museum, and I just love the, the ecosystem and all the animals and plants here. So um, it wasn't until I was maybe seven or eight stories in that I started to formulate this idea of, hey, I could write a whole book about these, and they could all be taking place in Tucson, and they could inter- interrelate in however I would like them to. Um, and it just became a passion project for me, and I just loved the whole process. You can listen to a reading from The Neotenic Queen, Tales of Sex and Survival in the Sonoran Desert, as performed by Alejandro Canelos. It's on our webpage at azpm.org, along with illustrations by Rachel Ivani. The book is published by Neotenic Press. 
The city of Bisbee is joining an exclusive list of Arizona places officially certified as community wildlife habitats by the National Wildlife Federation. Supporters say this is a major accomplishment for the city of about 5,000 people. As Tony Paniagua reports, it all began with a grassroots movement from just a few. A two-acre property in Bisbee is undergoing a transformation from partly deserted and barren to beneficial and inspirational. The restoration is possible thanks to community commitment and cooperation. It's been guided by a small team of residents with boundless perseverance. You have to start out small and you do have to prove yourself. Like, a lot of these kinds of projects will fall through. They'll lose their momentum. That's Carmen Falcon, one of the co-leads behind Project Wildlife Bisbee. The group's goal is to turn as many spaces as possible into usable habitats for birds, butterflies, and other species. That's accomplished by planting native and drought-tolerant flowers, shrubs, and trees for food and shelter. A source of life-saving water is also added to the garden. Our pollinators are having quite a bit of difficulty keeping up their numbers, so it's about boosting their populations. The three leaders of Project Wildlife Bisbee have been working tirelessly for several months at this section of Vista Park. It's in the Warren District of Bisbee, a few miles southeast of the popular historic downtown that most tourists visit. We went to the city. We had to get approval from them. We really needed to have them as a partner and a backup. But it's not hard to sell the idea of being nice to our pollinators since it really goes all the way down to our food chain. So they immediately backed us up, and they gave us the Upper Vista, which had kind of been a little neglected, to reclaim it with native plants. But the scope of their work goes beyond the park's boundaries. At meetings, farmers markets, social media, and elsewhere, the team has been spreading the message to hundreds of residents. Jane Gaffer is one of the other co-leads who volunteers. We've put in about 350 plants, all with individual emitters since then. Been a lot of work. We couldn't have done it without a backhoe. <laughs> Husband with backhoe, yes. <laughs> and how did you hear about or come up with the idea of Project Wildlife? It was Carmen's fault. She had a sign certified wildlife garden by the National Wildlife Federation and I asked her about it and we thought oh wouldn't it be great to have lots of people and then we went online and learned that actually we could make the city into a community wildlife habitat. With at least 100 gardens on board as of August 1st the Project Wildlife Bisbee volunteers accomplished this goal joining a very small list. Their municipality becomes the third officially certified community wildlife habitat in the whole state. Tony, have you ever been given two acres and the money to plant? <laughs> As I say, we wouldn't have done it if we'd have known how much work it was, but thank heavens we didn't know because it's been a blast. The other part of the trio is a retired seventh grade science teacher. I'm Doug Danforth and I'm, I guess you'd call the biologist for the park and rock hauler. Danforth has also co-authored two books about butterflies, damselflies, and dragonflies. It's just exciting to see how things have taken. You know, we just started planting in March, and it has just responded, even with a poor monsoon like we've had. 
the gardens look terrific. It's just a joy to come out here. I love it. What's so rewarding is while we're out here working, people walk by and they say, hey, it's looking good. Really like what you're doing. I mean, that's just such a boost. Two of those people are Suzanne Aldridge and Carol Beesham. Aldridge moved to Bisbee 30 years ago. I live about a mile away and walk this route every day. I think it's incredible the volunteers that have just selflessly come out day after day in the heat and transformed it. And it's also going to be developed into a great educational space for the students around here to come. So really looking forward to continuing to watch how it develops. Just so grateful for our community. Her walking partner, Carol Beesham, retired in Bisbee with her husband in the 1990s. I have fallen in love with Bisbee, particularly this neighborhood. As Suzanne said, just walking here and seeing the beauty has just been amazing, absolutely amazing. The work they've put into it, it's just beautiful. It looks like a real botanical garden. I like the, the various rock gardens. I love rocks. When I came to Arizona, I'd never seen so many beautiful rocks. It was just great. Whether it's rocks, plants, water features, or something else, residents are excited about the ongoing metamorphosis at this park and other parts of the city. And in spite of all the long hours and labor, the project's members will have unforgettable memories and stories moving forward. For example, Carmen Falcon remembers what happened after her group got a major grant to buy the first batch of native plants, once their exhilaration had subsided. Everyone woke up in the middle of the night in their own beds going, ah, we don't have water. So Arizona Water came and replumb things so that we could put get water to the plants free of charge. And then we went in the middle of the night, no, Havelina! So the city put up this temporary fencing. So we had a lot of people get on board. I think we brought in about $17,000 for this project. When you look back at your accomplishments and all that work that you've put in, how are you emotionally? This is how I am emotionally. Holy moly, we did this? There's more information on the Bisbee Bloomers Facebook page, and we'll also have a link on our website, azpm.org. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. In case you were wondering, the other two community wildlife habitats in the state are the community of Ajo and the Sweetwater neighborhood in the Tucson foothills. The Bisbee community received a lot of support from the Arizona Wildlife Federation, and next, Leah Britton will talk with Trika Oshant-Hawkins, who is the group's Conservation Programs Director. Well, hi, I'm Trika Oshant-Hawkins. I work with the Arizona Wildlife Federation. I'm the Conservation Programs Director. Trika, can you tell me a bit about the Wildlife Habitat Garden certifications? Sure. It's the certification program that was started by the National Wildlife Federation. And I work with the Arizona Wildlife Federation. We are an affiliate of National. So that program involves uh, encouraging and educating people how to plant native plant species that uh, help wildlife, whether providing food or shelter, encourages them to also provide water. And when uh, people have those elements in the garden, food, water, shelter, um, and especially in sustainable practices, they can apply through National Wildlife Federation to receive certification. So it's a certification program that um, targets individuals, but also communities. So I heard this is a big year for Arizona Wildlife Federation. 
Can you tell us a bit about that? You bet. It's an amazing year. Yeah, this is our centennial year. That means we have been around for 100 years. That makes Arizona Wildlife Federation the oldest conservation organization in the state. We're even older than National Wildlife Federation. Uh, So it is a big year. We are celebrating. We're recognizing um, all that we've done and the impact that we've had on wildlife and public lands for 100 years. That's amazing. And what other programs is Arizona Wildlife Federation working on? So our programs um, are focused in three main areas, in education, advocacy, and involvement. So we have a program that gets volunteers outside and directly helping wildlife and public lands. That program gets volunteers out, boots on the ground, and engaging in the landscape. We've got a program called uh, Becoming an Outdoors Woman, bow for short. And we have three bow workshops a year that get women outdoors in a comfortable, safe environment and learning skills and gaining confidence in um, outdoor activities. Advocacy, which is also a really important program area, and that's something that we were originally founded on, is advocating uh, for policy that protects, promotes, wildlife and public lands, and involving people in advocacy efforts. And speaking of involvement, how can our listeners get involved? We do have a website, azwildlife.org. We have a podcast, comes out twice a month. We have an e-news that uh, keeps people up to date, not just what Arizona Wildlife Federation is up to, but also what's going on with wildlife and habitat throughout the state. And, of course, follow us on social media. We've got Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram. One can reach out to us that way, sign up for our newsletter, and then become aware of the different events, activities, volunteer opportunities. And as you guys cross your centennial, what are some things you're looking forward to? Arizona Wildlife Federation has been around 100 years. We were very successful at that time when we were established. Many wildlife species were on the brink of extinction. We worked really hard to, one, create the Arizona Game and Fish Department, as well as the Arizona Game and Fish Commission, and ensure that wildlife are managed scientifically. And that's a great thing to celebrate, but wildlife and public lands are always under threat. And the good news is that there's something that anyone and everyone can do. And organizations like us, like the Wildlife Federation, are there to help people understand how to get involved, understand the things that they can do and have a positive benefit on our wildlife and public lands. Thank you to Trika O'Shant-Hawkins, the Conservation Programs Director for the Arizona Wildlife Federation. You can find more information on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.